Well, if you're good at something early, it means one thing. You're good at something early. And <laughs> I look at it like the, you know, somebody who's in a studying of the economy. What are the opportunity costs? And I'll, here's my favorite. I work with USA Volleyball. A lot of tall, let's say men. What yeah. do you think they usually start with in America? Basketball. And I'm sure most of the guys who play on our team would have been really good basketball players. They probably would have played college basketball. But would they be representing their country, maybe playing overseas, making good money? Probably not. But at <laughs> some point, they saw there was another sport played in the gym that had a net and a ball, and they went over to the volleyball side. Welcome to Impractically Perfect. In a world where everyone's fighting to be flawless, we bring you the inspiring stories of accomplished performers. I'm your host, sports psychologist, Dr. Casey Cooper. Learn the secrets to their success from the best in the world of sports, art, theater, and business. Their stories will inspire you to find your personal best. Life's better when we realize we're all a little impractically perfect. When it comes to youth sports, there are very few that can climb to the top and stay there consistently. And it's not just because they're effective at what they do. It's because they can meet the needs of their clients and the demanding, ever-changing face of youth sports. But when it comes to being a sports pediatrician, the American Academy of Pediatrics and myself agree. At the top of our list is today's guest on Impractically Perfect. Please welcome Dr. Chris Katuris. Well, thank you, Casey. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to work with you and to be on this conversation. You know, it's, it's always a pleasure when I know that someone is under your care. You're, you're amazing and caring at what you do. And I don't know how you do it for so many. I mean, the physician for USA Volleyball, Cal State Fullerton, Orange Lutheran, <laughs> like I, Chapman, I could go on and on. How do you balance all of that in your practice? I like to say I've got great people to work with from the families I work with, the athletic trainers, the folks that trust me with their care. We all work together and that makes it easier. Now, I'm sure if you ask my wife on occasion, she might say that balance is not a word I know too well, but I think it's against team approach. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do it in isolation. And when you work with wonderful people, things happen. Yeah, absolutely. So when I reached out to you and said, I want to start a podcast just on perfectionism, you said, you know, basically sign me up without any hesitation. You didn't even get to hear an episode because it hasn't gone live yet. And I, I just wanted to start with that. You know, what is it about this topic that connects with you so much in, in the field and, and in your personal life as well? Well, I think just like you alluded to, it's a professional and a personal topic that I struggle with. I think in the medical field, we are taught to care. We are taught to bring our best every day and we're not allowed to screw up. And if we do, we got to keep it quiet. We got to keep it within. So if we struggle with it and we're in our 40s, we're in our 50s, we have some professional resource. I imagine what kids who are in their teens who are developing or families that are struggling just to meet the daily demand, how do they deal with it? And there's just so many factors out there that work towards making kids feel like it's the only way to go. I've got to be perfect or I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall off the face of the earth that I just want to learn from you, the wonderful work you're doing. That way I can be a better resource to my patients and give them alternatives, give them other ways to look at things that will make them equally as successful and probably a heck of a lot happier. That kind of honesty is not something we find very often um, when people talk about their roles and responsibilities with balancing 
being a professional in that kind of a high pressure environment. I know first responders often say the same thing behind closed doors and, and other folks where mistakes, um, because we're human, can sometimes be magnified to, to a degree that is very frightening. Um, so I appreciate your honesty with that. How, how do you get support for, for that? Is that something that you reach out to other colleagues about? Is that something that, I mean, what are your self-care activities around that since you brought it up? I've learned to every morning take some time to pray, to think, to gain strength from my inner faith. And that's a daily process. Uh, I can thank my daughter for now having 5.30 a.m. wake-up calls for water polo because it gets me up early and I get on my bike and I find I like to exercise, but if I do it in the morning, I'm just a much happier camper. I have a loving and supportive wife who's also in the medical field. So there are days that will come home. We both have had those kind of days and we bounce things off each other. So it's both an internal change of thought. It's doing self-care practices I think are very healthy and not being afraid to learn, not being afraid to listen to other podcasts and not just to say, hey, I'm, you know, everybody else is screwed up too, but hey, we're on this together. There's ways to do this and to keep learning. Wow. So risk making mistakes is one thing I heard, but allow the people close to you to support you in an honest way. Thank you for all of those tips. That is wonderful. Um, when we think about perfectionism, I know Gen Z is, there's a lot of data coming out. What are you seeing in your offices with regards to this generation that might be a little different than, say, millennials or generations before? I think the kids who are now in their teens and young adults are struggling with the demands we've always had. Got to do well academically. Got to do well in the sports field. And it's amplified by social media. It's amplified by the fact that so many things in their life are public domain. So when they succeed, it's front page. It's on their Instagram post. It's on their Facebook post. Everybody's sending them smiles and happiness and thumbs up. And when they don't succeed, it may either be radio silence. It may be darkness. And that's got to be a challenge because I'm sure they're going on and seeing everybody else's success and wondering, well, heck, what just happened to me? And every so often we'll hear a really good story of an athlete who had a struggle, who worked through it and made it. And that's helpful, but then I'm sure the athletes sit there and go, wait a second, they made it. I haven't got there yet. How do I get from where I'm at now, which is in the bottom of the gutter, to that top again? Right. Right. So I think they're struggling because there's just so many forces that are public, so many things that we have to comment on. And that's where I think it's a little bit different than maybe folks who are in their 30s, 40s, and our age. You know, I think you're onto something there because comparison self-talk, which drives anxiety and depression, is nothing new. But comparison self-talk with social media 24-7 is new to this generation at this critical time where their brains are developing and, and as are their identities. Would you say that more frequently with this younger generation that there are safety concerns um, that are that you're seeing more often? Or is something that is remain consistent in your office? Well, I think I see more because I'm asking more. I know, no, I have to ask more directed questions about any self-harm, harm to others, feeling safe at home, in the gym, at school, on the field. And you almost wish you didn't have to ask these questions. There's enough things kids have to worry about. But I find when I ask them, sometimes I'll get that eyebrow raised. There'll be that momentary pause. I'll look over at mom or dad. I know I'm on something. And it may not come out that session. It may not come out that visit, but the seed's been planted. And it happens often enough that 
I keep coming back to it. And I sometimes will preface it by I've had kids in the same room, same team, go through the same concerns. So you're not alone. And that hopefully opens things up. Or I've had Olympic athletes who have told me that they're struggling with certain things. And when they have gotten some help, things got easier. So I try to preface in a way where you're not alone. I didn't pick up something by the way you were dressed or the way you were speaking today. It's just something we always ask because we now have resources to help because of wonderful people like you. Five, 10 years ago, I'd identify an athlete like, what the heck do I do? I can't do this by myself. And you'd be afraid to ask because you didn't want to get the answer. Now we've got such a wonderful set of resources, people like you who've done the work, who understand, who can provide them the help. It makes it easier in an already difficult situation. I'm really glad that you're recognizing it's something that everyone just needs to ask as a standard intake question, um, as a standard assessment question, because we did used to be scared of that. I mean, I, I even remember back um, being at now... You're the second Bruin that I've interviewed. I haven't yet even interviewed a Trojan being Trojan myself. So we're up to nothing. I like it. <laughs> but I, I remember being at the USC Counseling Center. It's like a, an intern student or a practicum student even. And it was such a rare thing for anyone to have to take an, an initial assessment of safety issues up to their supervisor because it was just such a rare thing. And, and then, you know, Last time I was in a counseling center at a college, it was almost weekly to monthly hospitalizations. And it just makes me think, okay, this has been a building issue. And I think we're now reaching this critical threshold. Um, but to know that pediatricians are in the office doing that as well is such a comforting thing, not just to other professionals, but to parents as well and to coaches to know that you're doing that. What advice do you have for coaches on how to best work with their pediatricians or their physicians, um, because you know sometimes they don't necessarily know what all of your roles are. Right. So I think it's important for coaches to understand the important role they've got. You know, they are with these athletes. They get to know their strengths, their weaknesses. They may get an inner reflection of the athlete a parent won't get, and their words are pretty important. You know, time and time you'll again hear how a real positive coach got me through a tough time and I look back and I thank that coach. Conversely, the wrong word, maybe not intended to be wrong, but just the way it was used could really set things back. Uh, I think coaches should be aware of who the athletes are working with. And if they have the ability to work with folks who are a little bit more comfortable working with high level athletes, athletes who have made that commitment, making those connections, I will often ask coaches to call me with, of course, patient parent permission. And I'm not calling them to lecture. I'm not calling them to uh, question their third down play calling, but it's to collaborate. And often when we've had those conversations, it opens up doors that wouldn't have been opened up otherwise. So I really appreciate the chance to work with people. So when coaches get those requests, hey, give me a call. Let's talk. Let's see what we can do to make things better, not just for the athlete who's sitting right in front of us now, but the athlete two years from now, because we're always yeah. learning in this process. Yeah, always learning always learning. What are some of the concerns, issues that you're focusing on at your office? I know that you post amazing things about nutrition and how to combat certain overuse injuries on a regular basis, but are there any projects right now that, um, that the audience should know about that they can get resources through your office about? I think the big thing I'm looking at now is front-loading parents. And part of it is I've got a 14-year-old daughter, almost 15, two 12-year-old sons. So I'm kind of in the mix of it as a parent. And so I'm seeing things from that perspective that have definitely influenced my professional opinion. And I think, 
you know, parents going with the best of intentions and you want to sign your kids up for all these activities, your kids show uh, aptitude and interest in maybe one of them. And hey, should we maybe go for that activity on a more single basis? How old should we do that? So I'm trying to give information. We've got some better science on how to guide folks. So I hate to say it at my kindergarten visit, I'm talking to families about sports. I'm talking to them about not jumping in too quick, too hard. And sometimes again, this look like, hey, they're in kindergarten. Yeah, but I'll see kindergartners who are doing dance and they're doing soccer. Two years later, they're doing dance full time. And people yeah. will even ask, what just happened there? So I'm just trying to give them information that, hey, there's a lot of other thoughts out there. Please look at this as a forum. We're here to discuss, throw ideas around, and use my experience working with the Olympic folks down to the uh, toddlers. Makes it kind of fun. Yeah, you know, I think that specialization so young and perfectionism kind of go together. Because a lot of well-intentioned parents think, well, if we specialize early, they're more likely to become perfect at it <laughs> to Got get it. that scholarship or get that opportunity early. Help me dispel the myth of those two things being connected. Well, if you're good at something early, it means one thing. You're good at something early. And <laughs> I look at it like the, you know, somebody who's in a studying of the economy. What are the opportunity costs? And I'll, here's my favorite. I work with USA Volleyball. A lot of tall, let's say men. What mm -hmm. do you think they usually start with in America? Basketball. And I'm sure most of the guys who play on our team would have been really good basketball players. They probably would have played college basketball. But would they be representing their country, maybe playing overseas, making good money? Probably not. But at mm -hmm. some point, they saw there was another sport played in the gym that had a net and a ball, and they went over to the volleyball. And they've done pretty well. Had they stuck with basketball, again, it wouldn't have been a complete crash and burn, but they wouldn't be winning Olympic medals. They would not be playing at the international level. So I look at them and say, hey, they made a switch. They saw a different opportunity. Your child should be the same way. You know, we always hear of these prodigies who at age three had a golf club and could hit the ball 300 yards straight on line. They're pretty dang rare. So you want to look at opportunities and every opportunity builds upon itself, perhaps. Yes, you were always destined to be a good baseball player, but that football you played, the basketball made you a better baseball player, better athlete, better person. So, so mix it up, have fun. So being kinesthetically gifted is going to transfer into a variety of things. You got it. You got it. You're not just going to be a single sport person. You're going to be a better movement pattern. And you may find something you enjoy you didn't even know. My daughter, age 14, picks up water polo, loves it. Two years ago, I don't think she could have spelled water polo. So here we are. <laughs> Yeah, so basically what you're saying is if parents get tunnel vision, their kids are going to pick up on that and miss broader opportunities. Yep, and then there's forces in society. You'll have coaches not trying to disparage on them, but, you know, they've got a best interest. Hey, your kid's really good. If your kid's in our program 24-7, we can make them better. And they want them because they're good. Coaches want to coach kids who are talented and interested. So, yes, they're going to probably pull you towards, hey, eight, nine, ten months a year, you and me are together. Well, as a parent, you want to say, is that really the best interest? Do I really want to mix things up? Do I want my kid to wait till they're late uh, middle school, high school, and then make a decision? The studies yeah. show that's the athletes who are probably going to do better long term. There we go. And that type of research highlight from you carries a lot of weight with parents. So sports specialization at a young age does not correlate in a high enough regard long term to, for you to recommend it. Correct, correct. You know, you've got the early entry sports, and we'll say the figure skaters, the gymnasts, but 
Mm -hmm. He said those athletes are done with the prime career by 17 or 18. For the majority of sports, you look at the NCAA data, you look at Major League Baseball, NFL football data, kids who sampled a bunch of different sports and maybe high school started to specialize longer term. And then you know, I'm in my 50s now. I want to look at people who are still mountain biking and swimming and chasing their kids at 50. When did they make the decision? So right. we're looking at that long term, not just for a potential pathway to college, maybe professional career, but your long term health and fitness down the road. Health and wellness. And I think if people can make that shift and embrace that um, at your recommendation, I mean, I recommend the same, uh, but it also curbs the perfectionistic desires. Because I think the more someone does the same thing over and over and over again, you and I know that practice makes a type of permanence. It doesn't ever make perfect. Right. And yet when people are doing the same thing over and over again, they start comparing themselves to other people and other standards as though they are going to become perfect at it. Right. And I, I just think that if they can be more generalized with their sports the way they are with their education, that it would really help curb that so much. It's, it's um, unique. Yeah. I've also had athletes who will tell me that they're in, let's say, the same sport, and here comes a new athlete. She was playing soccer. Now she's coming over to volleyball. Boy, she's picking up pretty quick. And the athlete who's been there 24 7 is like, what about me? You know, I've been sitting here struggling in the gym every day, and I'm not getting any better. And oh my gosh, this new kid's doing better. So that puts a lot of pressure on them as well. They don't get a chance to experience something new and take a break and get mentally excited about that new activity. Yeah, plateaus are very difficult for perfectionists, right? Or people aspiring towards that. The plateaus are almost, I mean, well, they are unacceptable from an emotional standpoint, but they're they're part of the developmental curve, right? How, how do you help people understand that from a, you know, kinesiology nuts and bolts perspective? The you know, what I usually do is I'll draw something. I'll draw the perfect recovery performance curve, which is like a rocket going straight up. Then I'll draw reality. It looks like a two-year-old scribble. And this is what we go through. You're going to have your good days. You're going to have your bad days. Sometimes you can explain the good days and bad days. Sometimes you're walking going, what the heck just happened? And if you acknowledge it, and you know that you'll look at performance, not like the stock market every day, but maybe over the course of weeks to months, you'll see a much more realistic pattern. And when you hit those plateau phases, you just take a step back and maybe there is a reason. Maybe I'm not getting enough sleep, maybe I'm not eating well, maybe I have final exams, maybe there's a little bit of struggle with relationships. Let's take a look at those. Maybe I need to take a step back. Maybe that week or two off is huge. Sometimes kids will get hurt. You're like, oh shit, are they gonna fall back? And they come back in six weeks going, I enjoyed my time off. I got to spend time with friends. I got to see more Netflix. This is kind of cool. And they're energized. So sometimes injuries can give you a different perspective. Breaks are so important to the development of these young people. The year-round training system has made breaks increasingly difficult. Um, one of my warning signs for parents is that maybe things need to be reevaluated is when the family vacation plans are dictated by the sports training schedule. <laughs> right. Uh, how important would you say breaks are and how many weeks do you recommend for year round athletes? Breaks are absolutely essential. I think we look at a minimum of two to three months off in a particular sport, ideally in at least a month a level of activity taken away. 
And during those two to three months, it doesn't mean you go and do private training. It doesn't mean you go and do something else hardcore. It's, hey, you go ride bikes with your friends. You go and hang out at the beach. You do some stuff that's fun. You take that much-needed family vacation. And most athletes come back and go, you know what? I'm ready to roll here. And parents, I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to get back in the car. I'm ready to go pull out the folding chair and sit at the field again. So you're right. You know, when a parent feels like a taxi driver, when it's harder and harder to pull your kid away from what they're doing to go to practice, it's time to call that time out. Just like yeah. a coach will, you know, when things aren't going well, you call a timeout. Not because you got magic words, not because you got the play that's going to win the game. You just want to break the momentum. So right. if it's not going well, take the timeout, break the momentum, come back when you're all energized. That was such a beautiful analogy. I want to bottle that up and I want to share that with everybody. Cool. <laughs> that was fantastic. Now, I honestly, I think breaks get such a bad rap, especially perfectionists in the office, they'll be like, well, sleep is such a non-productive time. <laughs> then it's, first we're dealing with, whoa, whoa, let's talk about all the productive things your body's doing when it sleeps <laughs> that are going to help you with your productivity tomorrow. But set that aside and generalize that to a longer break. I mean, two to three months, I can't, there's very few sports that I can think of that really have that. And, and, and for a parent to feel empowered to say, we're taking that break for the wellness of our child. Um, and we're the ones that get to decide that for them. I, I hope they, they really take your advice on that because it's so important. It is. I hope they do. It can be a challenge, but when they do it, they feel more empowered. The athlete feels empowered. Like I'm in control of my schedule. I'm in control of my body. I chose to do this. Right. And because of that, I feel strengthened and I had a good experience and Hopefully they'll come back and everybody else goes, gee, she looks more energized. What'd she do? What coach right. do you work with? The coach of break. Oh, right. there we are. Yeah. And you know what? And if, if a particular coach or club doesn't support that philosophy, there are others. I hate and to we say have, but It happens. People will switch. And I will even talk to coaches and studios about taking the break. And their first reaction is, well, we can't do that. Well, if you did and your athletes are happier, that word gets out. That mm -hmm. word gets out amongst the community pretty quick that you're athlete friendly, you're dancer friendly, and it could work to your advantage. Sure, okay, you lose the athlete for a couple months, and maybe that means a few less checks coming in the door. But if in the long run they're healthier and they're going to stick with you longer and tell their friends, it could be a long-term positive for everybody. Uh, I Thank you so much for that kind of honesty and saying that. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure discussing perfectionism with someone who sees it every day in the office as a sports pediatrician. I would like to wrap up the episode by asking a few questions that are a little more lighthearted. Remind everyone that you're just as impractically perfect as the rest okay. of us. All right. So this one might be tough for you, but are you summer or winter Olympics? I got to say summer because I work with the USA Volleyball. Let's put it this way. I love the summer. The winter, I better clothing though. <laughs> Gotcha. And finish this sentence with a word that does not begin with a P. Practice makes? Opportunities known. That's two words. Opportunities known. Thank you so much, Dr. Katuras. You are a blessing to the sports community and Orange County is so proud to have you. For more information about this conversation and others and how to get in touch with Dr. K, please go to impracticallyperfect.org. I'm your host, sports psychologist, Dr. Casey Cooper. And until we speak again, be excellent, everybody. Take care.